So this morning, we're in 2 Peter again, 2 Peter chapter 1, so if you'll turn there, and then also if you'll find 1 Corinthians chapter 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We've been discussing over the past couple of months the Holy Spirit-inspired pathway to maturity, the Holy Spirit-inspired strategy for disciple-making revealed to us in 2 Peter chapter 1 by the Apostle Peter. And what we've seen over these last two months is that God has provided us with everything we need for life and godliness. We have everything we need to live a Christian life, to live a godly life, and we have His precious and His magnificent promises so that we can be partakers of the divine nature, so that we can be like Him. And because of these great graces lavished on us by our God, we now must apply all diligence to add to our faith moral excellence, and to our moral excellence, knowledge, and to our knowledge, self-control, and to our self-control, steadfastness, and to steadfastness, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. And if we do that, if, if these qualities become ours, and if these qualities are increasing in our lives, we have the promise from Second Peter chapter 1, That we will not be useless to the kingdom. We will not be unfruitful in the kingdom. We will not be blind or at risk of falling away from Christ. But we will have the kingdom of God abundantly supplied to us in eternity. This is so important that Peter spent the last days of his life as he was awaiting his own execution communicating these things to the churches and reminding them of these things. Now, we've spent the bulk of our time walking through the qualities that Peter identifies for us in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. Let's look at those qualities together as we move into that last one this morning. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Now, for this very reason also, the very reason that God has given us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness... For this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence. And in your moral excellence, knowledge. And in your knowledge, self-control. And in your self-control, perseverance. And in your perseverance, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness. And in your brotherly kindness, love. And we've looked at every one of these qualities one by one over the past two months. And this morning we come to the last of those qualities the quality of love. The quality of love. And what is love? Though it's not a complete description, the Bible's simplest description of God is love. It's not a complete description. Now, we, we have confused that in our mind, in, our, in this day, in this age, to think that God is love and that's all God is. That's not a complete description of who God is, but it is a very simple description of who God is. God is love, 1 John 4, 8, right? And if we read on down below 1 John 4, 8, we find out that just a few verses below that, John goes on and he says, and the one who abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So this, the simplest and most profound definition of a Christian is the one who abides in love. Now, this is a different kind of love that we, than we looked at last week. We looked at the phileo love, that Philadelphia, brotherly kindness, the brotherly affection. This is a different word here. It's a different type of love, and it's agape love. It's a more comprehensive term. Remember, brotherly kindness, phileo, refers to 
love for, kindness towards, affection for our brothers and sisters in Christ primarily. This type of love is more comprehensive and it has all mankind as its object. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12, the apostle Paul wrote, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you. So we need to add to our brotherly kindness this affection that we have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to add to this a love for all people. Now what kind of love is Peter talking about here? What kind of love is the Holy Spirit communicating to us here? If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, probably one of the most familiar passages of Scripture on love in the Bible, one you hear read at weddings often and in other contexts, I want us to look at the definition of love by Paul through the, by the Holy Spirit through Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. Let's start in verse number 1. And just listen to some of these qualifications that Paul gives as we think about love. In verse 1 he says, If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. The greatest truths spoken in the greatest way fall short if they are not spoken in love. Verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. We can prophesy the future We can unlock the mysteries of the past. We can have enough faith to move a mountain. And yet, if we do not have love, we have nothing. Verse 3, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. If I give all my possessions, not some, not most, not a tithe, not a portion. If I give all of my possessions to feed the poor, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. That word give there that Paul uses doesn't mean just empty everything today. I, I, I'm making a sporadic emotional decision to give away everything I have to the poor. In fact, that Greek word forgive there implies a systematic strategy of giving away little by little by little systematically until you give away everything you have to the poor. It says if this is done without genuine love, not only will your bank account be empty and your cupboard empty, but your Spiritual account will be empty too. Only love makes giving worthwhile. So if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and then he says something even more dramatic, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Do you understand that even accepting death for Christ profits nothing if it's not done without, if it's done without true divine love? Love. So what Paul says here is a qualification before we get into the definition is that the loveless person produces nothing, the loveless person is nothing, the loveless person gains nothing. So what is love? Paul uses 16 strokes. Paul uses 16 strokes to paint for us a picture of what love is. Now I want you to hang on. I know 16 points is a lot, but hang on to the end because I want you to see the completed masterpiece that Paul paints for us, okay? 
When we get to the end, we're going to unveil this masterpiece, not stroke by stroke, but as a whole. And I think it's going to challenge you and encourage you and amaze you this morning. Let's look at each of these strokes one by one before we unveil the masterpiece. Number one, love is patient. Verse number four says, love is patient. And that word patient is used almost exclusively of being patient with people, not with circumstances. It's a patience patience that allows ourselves to be inconvenienced. It's a patience that is the ability to allow ourselves to be taken advantage of by a person over and over again and yet not be upset and not be angry. It's a patience with people who don't seem to value you or your time or your feelings. They may be self-centered and yet you continue on in patience and love towards them. This love is patient. Secondly, we read on in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is kind. To be kind here means to be useful, to be serving, to be gracious. It, it not only desires others' welfare, but it works for it. This is not a virtue signaling for the sake of social media. This is a reject the selfie moment, see the need, meet the need, See the wrong, seek to right the wrong, see the hurt, seek to heal the hurt without all of the virtue signaling that we see going on today. It's actually doing something. Kindness, action, active goodwill, love is patient with people, love is kind towards people. Thirdly, love does not envy. Love does not envy. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Jealousy or envy has two forms. I want you to listen very carefully. It has two forms. One form says, I want what that person has. I see what that person has. I'm envious. I'm jealous. I want what that person has. The second form of jealousy and envy says, I wish they didn't have what they have. Not only do I want what they have, have I wish they didn't have what they have I can't be happy for them because of what they have reminds me of the story of David and Jonathan you remember Jonathan was the son of Saul who was king of Israel and David was God's anointed Saul had been rejected and David had been anointed king but the time had not come for David to take the throne yet now who Logically speaking, from our perspective, would be the next in line to take the throne. Not David, but Saul's son, Jonathan, right? Jonathan knew that that he was next in line to be king. Jonathan knew that God had anointed David as king. And Jonathan loved, the Bible says, loved David, and David loved Jonathan. And look at how that love battled envy and jealousy that could have been present in Jonathan's life. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 3 through 5. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And what did Jonathan do? He stripped himself of the robe that was on him, 
the robe that identified him as the successor to the king, the robe that identified him as the son of the king. He stripped himself of the robe that was on him, and he gave it to David. And he took his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt, and he gave it to David. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Jonathan had every reason to be envious of David, but his love for David conquered any envy that could have existed. Love does not envy. Read on in verse number four. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag. That fourth stroke that Paul paints in this masterpiece of love is simply love does not boast. It does not brag. It does not parade its accomplishments. Envy is wanting what someone else has, but boasting is trying to get someone else to want what you have. Boasting is trying to make others jealous of, jealous of what we have. Jealousy, jealousy puts others down. Boasting builds ourselves up, and that is not love. Love does not boast. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. That's the fifth stroke of Paul's brush. Love is not arrogant. When we compare ourselves by ourselves, it doesn't take long before we start feeling pretty good about ourselves. We find reason that we can be arrogant. I'm better than this person. I look better than this person. I act better than this person. I make wiser decisions than this person. I'm more gifted than this person. I'm more talented than this person. I'm more successful than this person. And we can go on and on and on. But when we compare ourselves, not to one another, but when we compare ourselves to the standard, the standard who is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, perfect holiness, we find ourselves as much in need and as much in need of mercy and grace as anybody is in need of mercy and grace. We find that the ground is completely level at the foot of the cross, and we find that we have no reason for arrogance, no reason for boasting. Love is not arrogant. Sixthly, love is not rude. It says, love is patient, it's kind, it's not jealous, it does not brag, and it's not arrogant. In verse number 5, it does not act unbecomingly. It's not rude. The loveless person is careless. The loveless person is overbearing. The loveless person is often crude. I find it interesting that in our culture, some of the people who identify themselves as the most loving and the most accepting in our society... When they have parades and when they have marches, when they have gatherings, they're filled with profanities, so much so that they can use an expletive as a noun, a verb, an adjective, an adverb. The clothing is crude, the actions are crude, and yet they want to pretend that they're loving. They're the loving people. A loveless person is careless, overbearing, and crude. The Bible says love does not act unbecomingly. So if you see someone proclaiming themselves to be more loving than those around them, and they're acting unbecomingly, that's not love. To the extent that our personal living is ungracious and inconsiderate, 
is also unloving and unchristian. Love is not rude. Love is patient, is kind, it is not jealous. Love does not brag, it is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own. The seventh brushstroke in Paul's painting is love does not insist on its own way. It's not self-centered or self-seeking. There's an inscription on a tombstone in a small English village. And that tombstone says, Here lies a miser who lived for himself and cared for nothing but gathering wealth. Now where he is or how he fares, nobody knows and nobody cares. In contrast, on a plain tombstone in St. Paul's Cathedral in London, you can read, Sacred to the memory of General Charles George Gordon, who at all times and everywhere gave his strength to the weak, his substance to the poor, his sympathy to the suffering, his heart to God. Love does not seek its own. Even Jesus in Matthew 20, 28 said that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Number eight, love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. Are you asking yourself right now, are you even loving? <laughs> when we look at this definition, we've got, how, many, how many ways am I not loving? I'm not looking at successes here. I'm looking at failures in my own personal life over and over. Love is not irritable, it says. Love is patient, is kind, is not jealous. Love does not brag, is not arrogant. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked. Irritable means to be provoked. It means to arouse to anger. The being provoked that Paul is talking about here has to do with things done against us. Things done against us or that are personally offensive. Now listen carefully. If we are angered over the mistreatment of the unfortunate, the less fortunate, the hurting... If we're angered over the mistreatment of the unfortunate, or if we are angered over the maligning and contradiction and twisting of God's Word, that is righteous indignation. And we should be angry over this. We should be angry when we see those unjustly suffering. We should be angry when we see someone take the Word of God and twist it to fit their agenda or misrepresent the Word of God in our Christ and his gospel but when it's righteous indignation it will not be provoked by something done against us personally because it's not about us it's about God it's about his kingdom it's about his creation it's about his image bearers when I get mad over something done to me that's not love that's being irritable and provoked Love is patient, love is kind, it is not jealous, love does not brag, it is not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, is not provoked, and it does not take into account a wrong suffered. Did you just hear what he said? It does not take into account a wrong suffered. The ninth brushstroke that Paul paints is the fact that love, biblically defined, is not resentful. 
He uses a bookkeeping term that means to calculate. Resentment is careful to keep books. It's like an accountant. They read and they reread the books and the accounts and how you've offended them, how you've hurt them, how you've mistreated them. And it reads and it rereads those accounts, hoping for a chance to get even. Listen, keeping track of things done against us is a sure way to resentment and unhappiness. And, 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 and I just want to say this, as we look around in our world today, just as it is wrong for someone to mistreat another person, just as it is wrong for someone to act unjustly towards another person, it is also wrong to be resentful and keep the books and constantly send the bills. That leads to resentment and unhappiness on your part. But love keeps no books. No wrong is recorded for later reference. Love forgives. Love moves on. But resentment will make you bitter and it will make everyone around you bitter and miserable too. If we could just grasp the biblical definition of love, it would, it would solve a lot of our issues, would it not? Not the culture's definition, but the biblical definition of love. Love is patient with people. Love is kind in action. Love is not jealous. It does not brag. It is not arrogant. Love does not act unbecomingly and crudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked over personal things. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. It's not keeping books. Verse 6, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Number 10, love does not rejoice in sin and unrighteousness. Love cannot tolerate evil or rejoice in it in any way. Love cannot tolerate evil or rejoice in it in any way. So here we have a problem in our culture, and I'm just going to speak frankly. We have a problem in our culture when a whole movement, an LGBTQ movement, has moved from toleration to celebration. And if we refuse to celebrate, then we're not loving. And we're painted as unloving. And we're painted as hate-filled in our culture. We're painted as hate-filled by the media. We're painted as unloving people in our world today. But listen, according to the Bible, who gives us the definition of love, love cannot rejoice in evil. Can we love a person who is in sin? Yes, can we celebrate that sin? Absolutely not. A little closer to home here, one of the most common forms of rejoicing in sin and rejoicing in unrighteousness is gossip. Gossip uncaringly reveals the weaknesses and the sins of others. And it hurts them rather than helps them. Did you hear what so-and-so did? Did you hear what so-and-so experienced? Did you hear what happened to so-and-so? I'm just giving a prayer request here. Gossip is talking... Here's the definition of gossip. Gossip is talking about a problem with anyone who is not part of that problem or part of the solution. So if you're talking about anyone else and their issues to anyone who is not part of the problem 
or part of the solution. That's gossip, and that's rejoicing in their sin. You've got the know. You've got the scoop. You're on the phone. You're on social media. You're spreading the quote-unquote good news. You're gossiping the news. This is a vast majority of reality television shows. This is a vast majority of magazine articles, newspapers, news stories, Facebook posts, Instagram posts, Twitter posts, rejoicing in the sin of others, getting the scoop, getting the scoop out. And it makes us feel so good to be in the know, and it may be true. But if you're not part of the problem and you're not part of the direct solution, it is gossip and love does not rejoice in or take pleasure in sin, so stop it. Number 11, love is patient, love is kind, it's not jealous, it does not brag, it's not arrogant, it does not act unbecomingly, it does not seek its own, it's not provoked, it does not take into account a wrong suffered, it does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. Number 11, love rejoices in truth. It can't rejoice in unrighteousness, but it can rejoice in truth. He's talking of about God's truth here. He's talking about God's revealed word. Compromising the truth of God's word is not loving. I don't want to hurt your feelings, so I'm going to compromise the truth of God's word. That's not loving, that's hating. So I need to be careful to get it right. That's why we can't allow a person who teaches falsehood about God's truth to be received into our home or be given a greeting. When those Mormons knock at your door and tell you that they are actually Christians from another church, don't even let them in. Don't give them an ear. When the Jehovah's false witnesses knock at your door, don't give them an ear. 2 John 10, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. And we sure don't need to give anyone that's teaching contrary to Scripture the pulpit or a Sunday school class or a discipleship group. The mantra of our day is accept every sin I have or you will be branded as someone who hates. But one of the most unloving things we can ever do is compromise the truth of God's Word because love rejoices in what is true. Don't let our culture define love for you. God has already defined it. Number 12, love bears all things. Love bears all things. Verse number 7, it bears all things. Now, the term for bear all things means to cover or to support, to protect. Love bears all things by protecting others from exposure, by protecting others from ridicule, by protecting others from harm. Even when a sin is certain, this person has sinned. Love tries to correct that sin with the least possible hurt and harm to the guilty person. Love does not justify sin or compromise with falsehood. 
It doesn't expose or broadcast failures and wrongs unnecessarily. We've got trains doing a duet in the back. It's going to make November 29th a welcome. If the wind doesn't blow us away and the trains don't drive us crazy this morning, my love is being tested. That's what this is. Love does not justify sin. Love does not compromise with falsehood. And it does not expose or broadcast failures and wrongs unnecessarily. We are so quick to pull the trigger on exposing someone's sin, exposing where someone's made a quote-unquote mistake, exposing where someone has fallen before all the facts are in. And when all the facts come in two weeks later, everybody's forgotten Everybody's forgotten that that news story was even out there. They've just, they've just called this person guilty before they can be proven innocent and their reputation is absolutely damaged from, from now on. We need to be careful that we don't quickly expose or broadcast failures or wrongs unnecessarily, but that we cover and protect our brothers and sisters in Christ when it is wise and when it's possible. When it's wise and when it's possible, we need to protect and cover and bear with one another. Verse number, thir- or number 13, love believes all things. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things. It doesn't rush to believe the worst in a person. If someone is accused of something wrong, love will consider him innocent, under proven guilty. It hopes for the best for one another and about one another. Again, I hate to keep going to it, but virtually 75%, it seems, of social media posts and blogs are the exact opposite of this. It rushes to believe the worst about a person. And once it's out, it's just like a word. You can't take it back. Love believes all things. It doesn't believe the worst in a person. Number 14, Paul's 14th brush stroke. We're nearing the end here. The masterpiece is almost complete. Bear with me. It hopes all things. Verse 7, it bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things. When our ability to love runs out, our faith holds on to hope. When should I give up on this person? When should I lose hope? Never, never, never. Love hopes all things. And then number 15, love endures all things. That word endure was a military term that Paul picked up. And it's a military term used of an army's holding a vital position at all costs. Every hardship, every suffering, every casualty has to be endured in order to hold fast this point. Love is like that. It holds fast to those it loves. It endures all things at all costs. After it bears all things, after it believes all things, after it hopes all things, it endures endures through all things. Lastly, number 16, love never ends. Verse 8, love never fails. If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there's knowledge, it will be done away. 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Faith is not the greatest because faith will not be needed in eternity. We will no longer walk by faith, but we'll walk by sight in eternity. Hope is not the greatest because it's not needed in eternity because we will no longer have to hope for that which we have. But love will last from now through eternity future. It never ends. Love is the culmination of all of the qualities that Peter gives us in 2 Peter chapter 1. He begins with faith. He ends with love. As one commentator said, the one being the foundation or root, the other the crowning glory and bright consummate flower of all Christian excellence. Love is really the culmination of faith and moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness. It all culminates in love. And Paul uses these 16 strokes this morning to paint for us a picture of agape love. And now that he's finished his masterpiece, we can step back. And when those 16 brush strokes all come together, we can step back. And what do we see when we look at his masterpiece? I'll tell you what we see. We see Jesus Christ was the one sitting for the portrait all along. Jesus Christ fulfills every one of these brush strokes individually and together, cumulatively. And if God is love and Jesus is the exact image and representation of God, then if we want to know what love looks like, if we want to know what God looks like, we look to Jesus. Not our culture, shifting sand of this world that we live in, but we look to Jesus We look to God for what love is. We look to Christ, the exact image and representation of the Father. Jesus Christ, who chose to step out of heaven at the right hand of the Father and take on the form of a baby born in a manger in Bethlehem to live in this life, to experience pain, to experience sorrow, to experience trial, to experience tragedy, to experience persecution, to experience death and perfect holiness in our place. Jesus Christ, who shed His blood, not to just cover our sins, but to cleanse us of all of our sins and take away all of our unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, who was buried in a borrowed tomb and suffered the pangs of death until Sunday morning when He was bodily raised from the grave to live forevermore. That is love. That is the picture of love. That is the definition of love. Jesus Jesus. And listen, Jesus is not only the picture that Paul paints for us of love, but Jesus is the way to love. Jesus is the way to love. Now, some of you may have 
jotted down these 16 points. You may have saved them on your phone. You're like, okay, I'm going to make a checklist this week. I'm going to try to be patient. I'm going to try to be kind. I'm going to try to do all of these 16 things well. And you're going to miserably, miserably fail the first time your kids rub you wrong or your spouse rubs you wrong or your employer rubs you wrong or your coworker rubs you wrong or life rubs you wrong. Guess what? You're going to get rubbed wrong probably before you get out of the parking lot. I may have rubbed you wrong. Welcome to life, you easily offended ones, right? I mean, we all get rubbed wrong. We make our 16-point checklist, and we're going to try to be loving, and we're going to fail. Why? Because the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. We need the Holy Spirit in us to make us loving people. How does the Holy Spirit come into us but through faith in Jesus Christ and His glorious gospel? Jesus is the picture of love, and Jesus is the only way to love. We need Christ to rule and to reign in our lives and His Spirit to fill us and produce the fruit of love. And knowing this, knowing these things, the greatest act of love, the greatest act of love would be us getting the gospel to those who have yet to hear it and yet to understand it, to be evangelists, to be disciple-makers, to be missionaries with the good news of the gospel of love. Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Have you seen this? Have you understood this? Have you received this love found in Christ, in the gospel message, through the Spirit, for the good of the world. If not, we want to invite you this morning and appeal to you this morning to turn from your sins, to put your faith and your trust in Christ alone, to call upon His name until He gives you assurance that you are His child. And we're going to pray for you to do that just now. We're going to pray for you to consider that just now before we're dismissed. And after we pray, some of our pastors will be around the fountain. They'll be glad to pray with you if you need prayer. They'll be glad to counsel with you, talk with you if you need counsel. You can call the church office. We'll be glad to sit down and meet with you. But if you've never known love, experienced love, in the person of Jesus Christ, we want to invite you this morning, right now, to repent of your sin. Right now, to put your faith and your trust in Him. Right now, seek to know Him and to be known by him let's pray father we thank you for your grace your mercy your love your love this definition of love given to us in first corinthians 13 which is nothing more than a perfect picture of jesus christ his sacrificial life death burial and resurrection on our behalf help us to know and experience the love of Christ found in the gospel. Help us through the help of the Spirit to bear the fruit of love and help us to spread that love from here to the very ends of the earth. And we'll give you praise for it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As you're dismissed, if you need prayer, you can go to the fountain, meet one of these pastors. If you have an offering, there's buckets scattered around the park. As you leave, you can drop an offering in one of those buckets. Thank you for being with us this morning. Next week will be our last week outside. At least as we move into winter.
November 29th, we'll be inside at 10 a.m. Hope to see you there.